I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for March 2022. It's the morning of February 20th, the day after the last offering, which is usually a morning for rest. I pull Three of Wands and Queen of Cups with my coffee as I'm about to start journaling. I indulge a trite reading and write it down, though it says little. By writing it down, I mark an X on a spot to a doorway that I can't be bothered to walk through now, but might later. The easy read is something to cleave to, but not much. I leave it and move on. I write about aggravation and the wind. I go back to the previous day's pull, Queen of Swords and Ace of Cups. I write a few things about how age has made me more scared and not less, and thought about how, as a kid, I'd imagined it would be just the opposite. I write contradictory things, as usual, about hoping I'll spend a lot of time in California this year, and about never leaving my garden. Then I circle back to the X and the doorway. And this is an excerpt from my journal. I'm not satisfied with my interpretation of Queen of Cups, not at all. I think the cups are connected with Gnostic sense, direct experience, knowledge, Gnostic queen. This only raises more questions like, what lets you, me, know that you've experienced God directly? Ha, funnily, I think of California, the vastness and beauty, how big it all is. I've been thinking about poetry and witness. Shelley Rambo associates witness with spirit. I think I'm associating spirit and witness with air, with queen of swords. Water feels more like memory, a bank where information is stored. I think of the word perception, what is seeing. Poetry is a challenge to that question itself because to write a poem of any kind of quality, in my opinion, you have to perceive what is otherwise imperceptible yet immediately recognizable to those who missed it but know it instantly when they see the words. Gnosis. Ha. That's the end of the journal. As a teen, I wrote poems constantly. I think I perceived the necessity of witness. It wasn't that I had a fantasy of testimony. In fact, I was sure no one would ask what I'd seen. But with poems, I did my own asking. I was protective over what I saw and felt, not in a sense of being private about it, but of wanting to give it a home. I'm still like that. I didn't know the word trauma. I did know that a lot was going to hinge on remembering. This is an offering to poetry. For clarity, I've broken it into sections. One. The therapist I saw for years in the Bay Area used a pendulum to ask questions about the origin of problems. Like around what age did it start? Did we need to know what it was to clear it? And is there a block to doing so? Because many things improved through my time with her, I started to trust that you don't need a name for how you got hurt in order to heal from it. But since I cannot be sure, I still rely on written and memorized words as if they were breadcrumbs. There's a Cornish legend about two lovers named Tristan and Isolde. When Tristan is wounded by a poison-tipped spear, it gets infected. And when things don't improve, he does something only a person who knows that emotional facts are just as real as the physical would do. He gets in a boat with a harp and lets a great river carry him to the source of the poison. Sure enough, he arrives to the kingdom of the queen who made the poison, where he's brought back to health with the help of his future lover, Isolde. Sometimes writing a poem is like this. It's finding a charged moment, a bend in the creek with enough moving water to get you somewhere, and getting in. 
Put this way, I get why some say poet is a name to be given, not claimed. It's a noble way of navigating the world that you cannot do without courage. It's giving oneself over to texture, not knowing where you'll end up and who's there. Sometimes when we write poetry, we are legends riding right to the source of a poison. And at this point, I'm starting to understand why I pulled Queen of Cups. Two, I'm still reading Shelley Rambo's book, Spirit and Trauma, which is about witness and survival. Here, I'm saying that witness and survival both tie to poetry. The intention of doing poetry activates an archetype of witness. Poetry is a way of being in the world that is concerned with testimony, gathering, with an understanding that no one else will if you don't. Not for lack of love, necessarily, but because certain details only exist because you do. At the same time, at a root level, those details contain something shared. In fantasies of myself, I am born bardic. I come here knowing there are things in each moment that we'll need later, and that it is my task to preserve them. Shelley Rambo looks to trauma theory to assert that witness is necessary after trauma. Witness, in this case, is itself paradoxical, since by nature trauma is something that could not be fully comprehended at the time that it happened, which means that it often can't be fully named, told, or seen later on. My therapist knew this when she held out her pendulum and asked, do we need to know what it was to clear it? For Rambo, adequate witness is not a matter of precision or exact seeing. It is a matter of remaining. By this definition of witness as remaining, one must place the goal of healing somewhere else, for a while, to sit with the wound and the trouble. In the case of trauma, an event blurs the lines between life and death, and death itself is the thing that remains. It doesn't stay in the past. It exceeds its time limit. So to witness requires this skill of remaining, and of letting things be unresolved as you do. Many mistakenly believe this will be easy, but it's not. I think of the worst poems. They start as a lesson in a poet's mind, the poem itself reduced to a prop for the human need to have neat ending. It's bad in the sense that it's unfaithful to life. In The Disappearance of Rituals, philosopher Byung-Chul Han writes that, quote, poems are magic ceremonies of language. He doesn't say what the ceremonies are for, whether it's a good or a bad thing. And I know that by linking poetry with witness, I am moralizing it, wanting it to be for some good, some healing. I'm doing this because I too need neat endings. But I also know that a poem is a charm. And I think part of the deal with charms is that you don't always get to know right away what they're for. In her book, Shelley Rambeau beautifully cites philosopher Jacques Derrida, who notes that the French word for to survive translates to a surplus of life. This has to do with poetry because of the way that a poet dwells exactly there, in the supposed extraneous, in the torn husks and runaway fruit and all other so-called extra things, things which have poets to thank for their survival. Philosopher Brian Masumi has said, unforgettably, that poetic is a word, quote, we reach for when language is outdoing itself effectively, end quote. 
poetic language is a style that outperforms other styles in a very specific category, which is the stimulation of feeling. In this way, poetry is transgressive, because feelings are so often not asked for. The poetic is language that bends its role, does what it's told, and then some. That then some, the surplus, announced itself uninvited. It's an unauthorized B-side, resurrected from the cutting room floor. A poet is a key witness to the forbidden, erstwhile present. Three. I write Merleau-Ponty in all caps before I take a break from the offering to eat breakfast with my partner in the nook wrapped in windows. The house where we've been staying this winter is on the edge of a forest and, into what I perceive as a shared, low-grade frustration, he says, it looks like the trees have buds. Yeah, I barely noticed. I don't exactly pretend I didn't spend all morning writing about poetry and perception, but I am pretending. Because this moment with the buds and the synchronicity, it's a moment that marks so distinctly the start of spring, and that's something you don't always get, and it's so full of meaning. Don't ask why, instead of saying that, I say, I barely noticed, and strained to control my face and body. It's true, though. There is a red in the trees that wasn't there before, like someone's brushed watercolor over tree green ink, and now the whole house smells like compost. My boots are wet and hands blistered from the wheelbarrow. I can feel muscles that only get used in the spring readying themselves for the call to old service. Four. In Meditations on the Tarot, Valentine Tomberg talked about four stages of knowledge. There's the raw experience, then the felt understanding of the experience, then the practical application of what one experienced and understood, and then finally come the words for it. The function of language is that it expands, refines, and varies whatever meaning there was to begin with. I'm arguing, and it's easy to do, that poetry is the seizure of that process. I became interested in Maurice Merleau-Ponty through Andy Fisher's Radical Eco-Psychology, which I started reading last year while recovering from surgery. Merleau-Ponty's work is not about writing poems. I think it's about perception as a bodily function. It says that as humans, we are not plastic-shelled Dysons attaching vacuum-sealed thoughts to an outside world of fuzz, pine sap, thorns, and body language. Rather, our whole way of thinking is formed by what we see, hear, smell, touch, and taste. In the foreword to Merleau-Ponty's Phenomenology of Perception, which is written by philosopher Taylor Carman, he writes that Merleau-Ponty's life work was centered around the question, what is seeing? And that he was guided by this two-sided mystery, that we are one, open onto the world, and that we are two, embedded in it. For me, being open onto the world means that we are beings whose awareness is entangled with the world outside of our own physical bodies, 
binding us to them in a way that's different from, say, a couch and a coffee table are bound to one another. Being embedded in the world means that we are not couches or coffee tables, not angels nor machines, but fallible, living, changing beings. And the point of this is that for Merleau-Ponty to view perception as something that occurred from the inside out was to misunderstand our human situation. For him, perception wasn't about interstates. It was about familiarity, navigation, a homing instinct. It had an anti-estranging function in relation to the environment. The poetic instinct is like this too. With it, one can feel one's way back, reorient in the microclimates of a body, a room, a place. A poet will tell the tale eventually, but that isn't the first task. Poetry is part of a mystical order in which the philosophy of all things comes last. Having forgotten this order, I've written loads of truly bad poems trying to slap words over the world. I get so used to giving words to experience that I forget to let experience give words to me. Words which could take me where I ought to be going, like Tristan with the harp in the boat. I imagine every good poet as someone who can get in the boat before they start singing, but in my case, the singing itself is sometimes a boarding process. Sometimes I don't know where the boat even is, or the water, until I get some words down. And all of this is just to say, and shout out to William Carlos Williams, whose icebox poem in the public library of my hometown invited me here in the first place. I think the poet's job description is simple, albeit impossible. Don't miss a shift in contour, color, or mood. Develop the psychological faith to trust what you see and what wants to be seen through you, even if it puts whole rooms of people out of their way, even if it's not neat or convenient. Be vigilant and with unyielding faith to the tacit. And yes, this orientation toward every subtle thing is sometimes a trait of having survived trauma. It can be trouble, but it's also a way of seeing that makes for good poets. Sorry for the neat ending. listening to the free monthly offering for March 2022. I make these offerings weekly for those interested in supporting the effort for as little as $5 a month. All offerings come with audio versions. To subscribe or upgrade your existing subscription, you can click the link in the body of this text. Either way, thank you so much for being here. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro song is called Evaporate, and the outro is called Sway, which is out on Friday, but you can pre-save it now at the link in this post. 
Meanwhile, you can listen to Evaporate in full, plus more of Lee's work wherever you stream music. And you can find him online at the links in this post. See you next time. Thank you.